Welcome back to Over the Top, a great war podcast. Happy New Year's to all my listeners out there. I hope you had a wonderful and safe holiday. My holidays this year was really good. Got to spend time with family. That's always good. I know I do a lot of complaining around Christmas and it not being my favorite time of the year. But you know what? Spending time with the family, it really is fun. Uh, it was Christmas Eve. We went to the mother-in-law's. We made some tamales. As always, they were delicious. And as always, I ate way too much. I did get sick two times this year. Well, I say this year. Going into this year and already for the first of this year. Where I work, people don't like to call in sick. So it spreads like wildfire. So on this episode, I won't be drinking an alcoholic drink. Instead, I have a nice hot tea with some lemon. I know. Trust me, I know. I did come up with a couple New Year's resolutions for the show. The first one will be to try and get some guests on the show from the World War I community or anything that's related to the Great War. I think that'll be really fun. Second will be to improve the quality of the show, to get a new microphone with better sound quality, try to avoid being monotone. I don't want to sound like some robot. Although, if I did a whole episode with me sounding like a robot, I mean, how genius would that be? But I'm not going to do that. I'm also going to try to work on some pronunciations. Actually, I don't know about that part. Some of the stuff's kind of hard for me to say. I already get some some feedback saying, hey, you, you mispronounced this or that, and that's fine. Like I said from the, my very first introductory episode, I'm going to say some names wrong, some words wrong, places. I'm, we're just going to have to deal with it. I'm going to try to get some more sound effects. And I don't 100% want to rely on the script. It was about halfway through 2019 that I decided this is what I want to do. I'm going to do this podcast. But I was dragging my feet. It's like I had to have everything in line perfectly. Before I even started the show, I wanted two scripts ready. Then it turned into four scripts. It just got out of control. I have podcasting experience, but there's an intimidating factor of podcasting alone. It's one thing when you have a co-host and you guys are interacting, you're engaging in a conversation. The other one could read off you when you're not doing enough, etc. You know what I'm saying. But when you're alone, it's just you and a microphone. It can be intimidating. So finally, I just told myself, F it. Just do it. I do listen to my show to self-evaluate how I'm doing or what I can do better. I know I'm a bit of a cornball. But I always have been, so my cheesy sense of humor probably isn't going to change much. But listening to your own material really can give you some good feedback on your voice presentation. I have been noticing that I really heavily rely on, on the script. So I can definitely change that by breaking off from time to time during the show and just giving you the raw me. A good mix of script me, script me, and so on. So yeah, that's my 2020 New Year's resolution for the show. Oh, and the movie 1917. The release date was originally for Christmas Day, and then it got pushed back to January. I haven't seen it yet. It's got good reviews so far. Sam Mendes won Best Director. It won Best Picture Drama. I really don't like movie theaters, but I'm willing to make an exception for this one, and I'm going to see it this weekend. But folks, you know why we're here. That's right. We're here to talk about the Great War. We left off with the Russian 2nd Army being destroyed by the German 8th Army at the Battle of Tannenberg. The Russian higher-ups literally starved their troops and didn't give them enough ammunition to fight. If you go back to the development of the war, it was the Russians who were pushing for it. 
you think they would have at least planned for what they were pushing for. You don't starve them out, then push them into a fight with limited resources. Even if you didn't think the Imperial Army stood a chance, it still doesn't make any sense to me why they would not feed them and give them enough ammunition since they yearned for the war. General Samsonov, saying he couldn't face the Tsar after what happened, took himself to the wood line and blew his brains out. The German 8th Army, led by General von Hindenburg and his right-hand man, General Erich Ludendorff, will regroup their men and give chase towards Renenkamp's 1st Russian Army. They'll eventually catch up to the Russians at Masurian Lakes and open again that can of whoop-ass. However, Renenkamp wasn't confident his army could win, so his overall goal for this battle was to stop them in their tracks, which they did. The Russians ended up with around 125,000 casualties compared to an estimated 40,000 suffered on the German side. Side note to point out, two corps were taken from the Western Front to help support Hindenburg's 8th Army. This strengthened the Eastern Front for the Germans. They strategically outmaneuvered the Russians, which led to them being pushed out of German Prussia and back onto Russian ground. But this will take away from the Western Front, where the German army believes to be in total control, which up to this point, they kind of are. Losses were high, but again, the Germans' advance was halted, which will give Russia a chance to recover and regroup for upcoming battles. Now let's go ahead and shift back to the Western Front. The failure of Joffre's Plan 17 and the defeat of the BEF at Mons has driven the British and the French into a great retreat towards the Marne River. Two battles will take place to try and slow the Germans' pursuit down. First, the battle at Le Cateau, fought by four divisions from the British 2nd Corps under the command of Smith Dorian, and six divisions from Germany's 1st Army under the command of von Kluck. The Germans were relentless with its superior artillery, machine guns, and wave after wave of attacks. A private for the BEF describes a situation saying, quote, About quarter past six, the Germans made a great rush under cover of their guns. It was at this moment when a shell struck within five yards of us, covered us with dirt, but never exploded. Half past six, they made another attack with their machine guns, and at this moment, they swept the whole lot of us out. The butt of my rifle was split to pieces, and I was wounded in both legs, twice in the left arm, and clean through the mouth, which left me helpless on the ground with a loss of blood and unable to move. Just getting dark, and the Germans came through us and handled us very rough. Private Charles Fusel, 1st Somerset Light Infantry, 11th Brigade, 4th Division, end quote. The British suffered heavy losses on that day of August 26th. In fact, the British hadn't seen losses like this since Waterloo in 1815 when a little guy by the name of Napoleon Bonaparte was defeated. At Waterloo, the British had around 31,500 fighting men and suffered around 8,500 casualties. At Le Cateau, they had 40,000 men fighting and took around 7,800 casualties. Those casualty numbers are staggering. However, one good thing this skirmish at Lacateau did for the Allies, it slowed down the German 1st Army. The BEF did punch back, and the Huns weren't exactly in a rush to get back in the ring. The BEF went into full retreat towards the River Marne. Imagine the situation. The BEF's in retreat, 
There's stragglers everywhere. The men aren't motivated to fight anymore, especially those who got separated from their units. The stragglers converge in the town of St. Quentin. The French townsfolks don't want them there, because they know the Germans will show up and shell the city. Two colonels surrender their battalions over to the town mayor to hand over to the Germans. These men just waited around for the Germans to come and take them prisoner. The town became a shit show. Soldiers were becoming intoxicated, yelling about. Men were laid out everywhere along the town streets from exhaustion. They didn't even have their equipment or rifles anymore. It was at this point when Captain Thomas Bridges from the 4th Dragoon Guards arrived. Appalled by the situation, he took the signed paperwork from the mayor and got the two battalions of Warwick and Dublin Fusilers back on their feet. He later described the situation saying, quote, I sent an ultimatum giving them half an hour's grace, during which time some carts would be provided for those who really could not walk, but letting them know that I would not leave no British soldier alive in St. Quentin. Upon this, they emerged from the station and gave no more trouble. End quote. Von Kluck, even up to this point, was still unsure where the British had just fled to. He wasn't even expecting them to be at Le Cateau. Every encounter with the British came as sort of a shock. Oh crap, the Tommies are here. The next battle to stall the Germans will be at Guy St. Quentin on August 29th and 30th. The French refer to this as the Battle of Guise. Germans refer to it as the Battle of St. Quentin. It's actually two separate battles. Participants are the French 5th Army and the German 2nd Army. One battle was fought along the Was River in Geese where the French gained the upper hand, and the other was fought to the west of the Was River in the neighborhood of St. Quentin. When the Germans crossed the river on the afternoon of the 28th with ease, von Bülow didn't believe his men would encounter much resistance. But, and by now you should know about those big butts. On the morning of the 29th, through the fog, the French greeted the Germans with an opening volley of fire. But this wasn't any of Bülow's fighting corps. Instead, they opened up on a group of telephonists rushing to install communication wires. They had been pulling a wagon with their equipment by horse when they took fire. So for infantry tactics, when taking fire, your reaction should be to get down or get behind cover and assess, this, and assess the situation, determine where the shots are coming from, and then obviously return fire in most cases. Well, these guys are telephonists. They're not taking cover and returning fire, and they're damn sure not rushing the enemy. They start frantically maneuvering their horse and wagon and bolt back to the main force in a wild manner. Problem for the French, this gave the main German assaulting force the alert, so they start deploying in tactical formations to duke it out with the Pailus. Had the French been patient, they might have been able to set up a successful ambush, at least better than firing on some telephonists and alerting the force behind them of their whereabouts. After engaging the French, the Huns quickly realized the Pailus were there to fight. They weren't going to just easily turn and run. The 5th Army's intention was to slow them down. To do that, they would have to put up a good fight. Heavy fighting commenced, and by 10 o'clock the French 10th Corps was pleading with Len Rizak for help. To the west, at St. Quentin, von Emmix and von Plettenberg's soldiers were engaged in battle with the French 10th and 3rd Corps. However, the bigger fight between these two battles was at Geese. The end results were, yet again, the Germans pushed back the French, 
And what comes with each battle? More dead bodies. And just like Le Cateau, this stalled the Germans for 36 hours, allowing the rest of the French and British to retreat without hassle. Without hassle, as in no bullets or artillery shells coming at them. They're still hungry, tired, and in pain. They weren't exactly taking a stroll through Luxembourg Gardens taken in the fresh air. Now again, after the BEF retreated from La Von Kluck had no clear perception of where they were going. One report said south toward St. Quentin, another report said southwest. And at this point, he wasn't too concerned with them. He felt his army had already defeated the majority of Sir John French's fighting force. The overall plan for von Kluck's army was to march southwest, then encircle Paris from the west side. And this is exactly what the German First Army did for the next four days with no British in sight. Kluck would receive communication from von Bülow on the 30th saying they had been in battle and had driven the French back in a decisive victory. This would be Guy St. Quentin. Kluck was now in a pickle. Does he go with Moltke's order to continue southwest until he reaches the Seine south of Paris? Or does he switch directions to cut off the retreating army that Bülow had just pushed back? If he switched directions, he would have an excellent flanking advantage possibly wiping out Len Rizek's fifth. Timing, of course, would be the key to this. Kluck will ponder this decision and ultimately will change directions on August 31st which will put him southeast of Paris, and he will end up missing the opportunity to flank the retreating army from Guy St. Quentin. This will allow the newly formed French 6th Army to gain a good striking position on Kluck's army. But I'll get into this shortly. I'm getting just a bit ahead of myself. Before the war started, the government of France showed no concern that Paris could actually be invaded. However, after the Battle of the Frontiers, an overwhelming panic took over. All of a sudden, the need to defend the capital now became top priority. So they turned to Joseph Galliani for help and made him the military governor of Paris. Galliani spent most of his service at the French colonies, but up to now hadn't seen no action since the start of this war. Joffre kept turning him away. Galliani constantly told Joffre the need for more soldiers. But because Joffre was set in full motion with his plans, dismissed these suggestions, even with putting the capital at risk. On September 1st, Paris became an army zone at Joffre's request, which also put Galliani as his subordinate now. This did, however, give the military governor full control of the garrison in Paris. This is also when Joffre summoned the newly formed 6th Army under the command of Galliani, which consisted of five active divisions five and a half territorial divisions, and four cavalry divisions. It also included around 72 of the 75 millimeter artillery cannons. On September 2nd, the French government abandoned Paris and headed for Bordeaux to run the country from there until further notice. The state of Paris was in chaos. There was panic everywhere, mass evacuation. People were starting to empty their bank accounts. The next morning after the government left, Galliani posted his proclamation in all public places of the city. It said, Army of Paris, citizens of Paris, the members of the government of the Republic have left Paris to give a new impetus to the national defense. I have been entrusted with the duty of defending Paris against the invader. This duty I shall carry out to the last extremity. Paris, September 3rd, 
1914. Galliani was set to defend Paris at all costs. He was even ready to destroy historical monuments and bridges at the, as a last resort. The French were not about to let the Germans bask in its beauty. Apparently for the French, reading Galliani's proclamation in their own language carried very powerful words. This meant hope and stood for courage and that France would fight until the last man standing. This was a big responsibility for Galliani. He had to ensure all the defenses were in place and that the city had constant eyes on the horizon for Kluck's approaching army. And by the way, Galliani is around 65 years of age at this time. Didn't anybody back then have heart attacks? That amount of stress for a man at that age? I say this jokingly, but not really. I mean, most of these generals are old. With that amount of stress, I haven't read about one general dropping dead of a heart attack. Kind of odd. The expected attack on Paris never came. Aviators, which France is said to have had the best at that time, reported seeing Kluck's army marching southeast towards Chateau Thierry and the Marne, away from Paris. British aviation reported the same. Now that Kluck's army marched past and ignored the capital, Galliani was presented with an opportunity, an exposure to the German 1st Army right flank. But this would overall have to come with the approval of Joffre. Galliani pleaded with him that now was the time since Kluck's army wasn't expecting it. Joffre liked the idea, but before making the decision, he needed to be reassured that both the 6th Army and the BEF would be ready to support the new offensive. There was turmoil between many generals on both fronts up to this point, but the main beef at this time was between Sir John French and General Lenrezek. French didn't quite care for Lenrezek after he was given a rude remark during their first meeting. Sir Jean was awkwardly trying to speak French, asking Lenrezek why the Germans had crossed over the city of Way, which lies along the river Meuse, but got tongue-tangled trying to say Way. Lenrezek turned to his interpreter and asked, What did he say? What did he say? After being told, Lenrezek responded to French with, They've come to fish. Oh, that didn't sit well with Sir Jean. He thought that was rather rude. Here's where I'm going with this. Joffre wasn't happy with Linrezak's retreat. Joffre thought he wasn't in the right state of mind. Lord Kitchener had to get involved. He actually got in a boat, came across the channel, and met with Sir John French and Joffre. He pulled Sir John French aside. They went into a separate room, had a discussion. Who, I mean, who knows how that discussion went down? Either way, when they came out of the room, Joffre dismissed Linrezak of his duties. The 5th Army was replaced with General Louis Franchet d'Espray, who distinguished himself in Lorraine. Here's the thing. I don't believe Linrezak was a terrible commander. At some point, it seemed to me, as I've been reading about these battles, he was the one making rational decisions and asking for more troops, warning of a big force approaching on his flank, and Joffre chose to ignore him. But now was a critical turning point, and Joffre desperately needed 100% support from the BEF. After Kitchener got involved, ultimately Joffre didn't have a choice. Either way, it was shortly after they met that Joffre dismissed Linrezak and replaced him, and the BEF was in full support with the French. So we've covered the following so far. The Great Retreat, Le Cateau, Guy Saint-Quentin, the development of the French 6th Army under Galliani, 
and the new Fifth Army Command. And now... We've come to the Battle of the Marne. The battle that would come to be known as the fight that saved Paris. This wasn't a battle with one single encounter, with one side destroying the other. This was a battle fought over a week's time with series of maneuvers that had burst of fierce combat. It didn't contain thousands or hundreds of thousands of soldiers, rather it contained over a million soldiers. The winner will be determined by who could hold out the longest. And I mean, this is going to become like a Rocky Balboa, Apollo Creed boxing match. They're just going to duke it out and see who can last the longest. And let me just say that by this time, aside from the newly formed French 6th Army, German, French, and British troops were all exhausted. They had been marching miles after miles, sometimes 25 miles a day. They were tired, hungry, and up to this point, morale was at an all-time low. Take, for example, the soldier of Kluck's 1st Army. The arrival at Paris would have meant an end to this long ordeal. One German officer describes the situation on September 3rd, saying, quote, One of our battalions was marching wearily forward. All at once, while passing a crossroad, they discovered a signpost on which they read, Paris, 37 kilometers. It was the first signpost that had not been erased. On seeing it, the battalion was as though shaken up by an electric current. The word Paris, which they have just read, drives them crazy. Some of them embraced the wretched signpost. Others danced around it. Cries, yells of enthusiasm accompany these mad actions. The signpost is their evidence that we are near Paris, and without doubt, we shall soon really be there. This notice board has had a miraculous effect. Faces light up. Weariness seems to disappear. The march is resumed, alert, cadenced, in spite of the abominable ground in the forest. Songs burst forth louder. End quote. The poor bastards think they're going to Paris and that this treacherous war will be over soon. But now, with Kluck's shift to the southeast, the dreams of Paris and the end of this ordeal was gone. The march was back on. The Battle of the Marne didn't have the epic tragedy like the Somme or the bloodbath like Verdun, but it damn sure soaked the earth with a lot of blood. Both sides combined produced close to 500,000 casualties in a week's time. I'll repeat that again and slowly in case you missed it. 500,000 casualties in a week's time. Here's another thing about the Battle of the Marne. It will expose a major crutch in the Schlieffen plan. Communication. When communication breaks down, the plan breaks down. Kluck had no idea about the existence of the newly formed 6th Army under Galliani. At this point, it was taking a couple days for communication to go back and forth. By the time Moltke found out that his 1st Army disobeyed orders, switching the plan movement from southwest to southeast, it was too late to stop them. Klute continued to move in motion, looking for the French left flank and whatever remained of the BEF. As of September 2nd, the 1st Army had been moving at 40 kilometers a day for the past four days. Klute's staff was reporting that the soldiers were worn out. The 1st Army was in full motion, and the 6th was on its tail. But Kluke was no dummy. He wasn't about to leave his right flank completely exposed. He set up one corps with two infantry divisions, 
plus artillery at the River Orc. This was a defensive position facing Paris right in the path of the 6th Army. The defensive force was commanded by General von Grenau. On September 5th, Klug received reports from Grenau that he was being attacked from the west. The 6th Army had come upon his position. Klug was hesitant at first, thinking this was some plan to halt his advance, but eventually he sent two corps to help Grenau. These were two corps that he had previously lent out to Below and had taken them back. This would also weaken the fighting force of Below's army. This will be the first backward movement by the German corps that wasn't part of the Schlieffen plan. Side note, also on September 5th, France, Great Britain, and Russia entered into the Treaty of London, which they formalized their Triple Entente, pledging that none of them would enter into a separate peace agreement with Germany. The Germans were putting up a good fight, but right when they thought the French were collapsing, more reinforcements arrived. French artillery was now being rolled up to the front lines with direct sight at the Germans. The 75 started pounding them. The Germans were taking a massive amount of casualties. Men were being ripped apart limb to limb on all sides. There were dead bodies everywhere, men crying out in pain. Grenau had no choice but to pull back from the River Orc which will be what saves his men from total loss. Klug now realized he had a major threat to the west, so he pulled his army back across the Marne towards the Orc. His thoughts were to encircle this threat and eliminate it. Here's where another big problem starts for the Germans. By pulling the first army back, Klug created a gap between him and Bülow's army, a gap of about 35 miles, and in the next few days, this gap will grow even bigger. Gaps like the one Kluge had created are similar to the gaps that Napoleon took advantage of and was key to a lot of his successful battles. Here's another thing. For the soldiers of the First Army, who were already exhausted, rarely got more than a couple hours sleep, and hadn't received rations in five days, this meant more hurried marches. Some of the men's boots were falling apart. How could you expect them to put up much of a fight? Their boots are falling off. Their uniforms are falling apart. By September 6th, on the other side of the line to the east, the French were beginning to fall back in multiple areas. Moltke believed a breakthrough on this side leading to the encirclement was plausible. It was at this time that the BEF moved its way into the gap between Kluck and Bülow, and Franchet d'Espray's 5th Army was in fight with the German 2nd. Both Kluck and Bülow were taken back when they learned the BEF was between them and there was nothing they could do. Bülow was getting hammered by the 5th, and Kluck was occupied with the 6th. This was the oh-shit moment. The job of the French line to the right was just to hold down a defensive position and keep the Germans from pushing forward. Moltke given his left flank new orders to break through, the Germans were giving it all they had, and the French were holding on for dear life. This is also when Galliani began to fill taxi cabs in Paris and drive soldiers to the front for support. Galliani filled the taxi cabs with men from the 7th Division that just arrived back from the frontier. The Paris taxi cabs were Renault Type AGs. And some people don't believe this overall had an effect on the 6th Army. Some people say it did. I mean, overall it did add support. But personally, I think it was just more of respect and humor 
made for a good story. It was sort of a dog and pony show. And the taxi drivers were paid for driving the soldiers to the front. Another new army for the French was the 9th. Ferdinand Foch, after performing well in Lorraine, was promoted and given this command. Foch's new army met with the German 3rd Army on September 7th in a marshy area called the Marais of St. Gond. The two armies clashed and duked it out with heavy loss of life. The French did lose the battle, but not without Foch adding to his growing aggressive reputation. He told his men, attack whatever happens. The Germans are at the extreme limit of their efforts. Victory will come to the side that outlasts the other. This is basically what the Battle of the Marne was all about. The victors will be the ones who can hold out the longest. It's like that game kids play, the staring competition. The stare-off begins, everything seems okay, I've got this, not too bad, then the eyes start getting hot, they want to blink so bad, they're both fighting the urge not to blink, not gonna blink, I'm not gonna blink, then eventually one gives in and blinks, and the winner is the one who could hold out the longest without blinking. Who was going to hold out the longest? Who's going to start retreating first? Moltke at his headquarters in Luxembourg was receiving no communication from Kluck and below. He had no idea of the status of the two armies. He needed answers. One of the reasons why he didn't just get into a car and drive to assess the situation in person was because the Kaiser was also present at the headquarters. Moltke feared that if he left, Wilhelm would start making irrational decisions and do something disastrous. Moltke was falling apart at this time. He was losing his nerves. He was writing his wife daily, telling her how personally responsible he was for the German lives being lost. And if so many lives were lost with no victory, how would he be able to live with himself? He knew the Schlieffen plan was falling apart. Moltke ended up sending Colonel Hench, the head of the intelligence staff, by car to get a clear report. Hench arrived in the evening at below 2nd Army Headquarters. There, at first hand, the picture of the overall situation began to look grim. Bulow had the 5th Army in front of him, and now the gap created by Kluck had grown to about 50 miles, which also had been penetrated by the BEF. Bulow told the head of the intelligence that a volunteer retreat by Kluck and his army would be the only way to avoid disaster. And this wasn't Bulow losing his nerve or freaking out in any, any sort of way. He methodically thought the situation out. Not only his position, but also his men were weak. They were both on the verge of crumbling. General Philippe Petain, who I'm sure I'll talk more about in future episodes, his division captured important terrain, giving them the upper hand against his army, and ruthlessly kept sending attack after attack, and now the British were on his flank. Retreating into defensive positions and regrouping would be the only thing that could save what was left of his army and the total collapse of the Imperial Army itself. The French had now been trying for three days to overtake Kluck's army at the River Oik. The Germans withstood these attacks and had worn the 6th Army down. Kluck saw this as an opportunity to encircle them and finish the 6th. On the morning of September 9th, Colonel Hench sent out to see Kluck. It took him five hours to cover 50 miles as refugees were strung all along the roads. 
Gallieni's 6th Army was falling apart and retreating in all directions after the pounding Kluck's army was giving them. Over the eastern side on the French line, the Pailus were hanging on by a thread as the Germans pushed to overrun them. What saved them was the heavily defensive fortress of Verdun. This had been improved several years before 1914 and they now had armored retractable turrets that could withstand hits from heavy artillery. Heavy artillery like the kind that took down Liège and Namur, and at the same time, keep attackers under constant shelling. And the rough terrain of Verdun actually prevented the French from retreating. The fortress guns of Verdun ended up slaughtering the last attacking foes. When Hench finally arrived at the First Army headquarters, Kluck was away, so he gave the chief of staff an updated report, which was, the BEF was now north of the Marne, and below 2nd Army was heading north towards the Aisne River. He explained that Bilot's army was in such bad shape that only a retreat could save them. When Kluck returned, he was immediately briefed on what Hench had reported. Of course, because Kluck is naturally a fighting man, he resisted, saying, we must always push forward. But when he realized that Bilot had already been in motions of retreat, his heart sank. He realized the Schlieffen plan failed. He had no option but to accept retreating his army too. Here's a kicker. Upon accepting this, one of his corps was ripping apart the last of the French defensive forces. Nothing now lay between that corps and Paris but 30 open miles. The impossible dreams was again at the reach. But just then, the corps commander Quast received new orders from Kluck to join the retreat. Quast's men would again walk by the sign that read, Paris, X kilometers away. It was over. Moltke wrote his wife saying, quote, I cannot find words to describe the crushing responsibility that has weighed upon my shoulders during the last few days and still weighs on me today. The appalling difficulties of our present situation hang before my eyes like a dark curtain through which I can see nothing. End quote. The first battle of the Marne proved to be an end for the Schlieffen plan, and overall its destruction came from the lack of communication. Moltke had difficulties communicating with his first and second armies. The first and second army had difficulties communicating with each other. Another flaw I see with the Schlieffen plan was its constant need for the hurried marches. On to the next. Go, go, go. So we can quickly get this over with and get on to the next. That was the mentality of the commanders. These armies were covering a ridiculous amount of miles on foot, in the summer heat with 60 plus pounds of equipment for days on end, then to not feed them for several days? How could the higher ups possibly think they could continue on like this? If they would have just slowed it down, rested and regrouped from time to time, properly replenished their soldiers with food, equipment and ammo, this history might have been written differently. This probably also would have helped with communication. Now let's talk about the dead. Again, this wasn't the most famous battle of the Great War. It wasn't the Somme, nor as bloody and as long as Verdun, but it's definitely in the all-stars of the Great War battles. 500,000 casualties with so many dead. This was a hurried chaotic battle. They didn't just call a timeout to properly dispose of the bodies. Dead bodies were left everywhere to rot and decay in the heat. 
bloated dead bodies, oozing pus coming from their ripped apart bodies surrounded by hundreds of flies. Often maggots were already setting in, weaving their way in and out of ghastly gashes. Limbless and headless bodies were becoming a common sight with this type of modern war. One captain described the scene saying, quote, The road was a horrible, terrible sight. My first real dose of horror. And I remember poor Kirk Smith advising me not to go over the bank at a certain place because just over it was a man with his head blown off. As it was, I had to see enough to sicken me. The whole road literally in shambles, bodies and blood everywhere, and some appalling scenes of dying men. Captain Thomas Shepard, Kings Liverpool, end quote. Rats were starting to come out. This was an open buffet of dead corpses for them, all you can eat. Sometimes rats would eat the flesh down to the bone. Now, my next statement might seem a bit of an oxymoron, but I'm going to say it anyways. I do believe humans are the most violent creatures on this planet, yet I don't believe we were wired to accept seeing this type of horror. It shouldn't come natural. Sights like this should bother you. If you can walk up to a body rotting with maggots, or a decapitated body, or any other sort of grim scene, and feel absolutely no emotion from this, not even from the inside, your wiring might be off. I know hardcore men, men that have done great things for this country, and even the hardest of men get bothered by ghastly scenes, they just don't show their emotions like others. But don't think for a minute, they just don't forget about the horrible scenes of the dead. It sticks with them for the rest of their lives. This is 1914. This type of warfare has never been seen. It's producing carnage they weren't ready for. After the battle was over, the men walked in shock as they passed by body after body, each one getting harder to deal with. So many dead, so gruesome. And at the top of this, there were dead horses everywhere, thousands and thousands of them, rotting just like human bodies, putting off the same pungent odor of decay. The only thing different about a dead horse, if it's still fresh, and the bowels haven't spilled out and spoiled the meat, you can eat it, and horse meat will become a common ration for the men. The glory is long gone. This was now hell on earth, and it's only going to get worse. And I'm going to start wrapping this up right here. I was going to include the Battle of Ain with this episode because it really goes hand in hand with the Marne, but I think I can make a whole episode out of that, plus what follows the Battle of Ain. Again, this is just the start. The war has barely been going for about a month. I'd like to thank everyone for their continued support of the show, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Oh yeah, my recommended World War I movie for this episode is a very long engagement. It stars Audrey Tuteau and was directed by Jean-Pierre Jeunet. An absolute fantastic movie. It is a romantic movie, so if that's not your thing, there's your warning. The movie has some really good trench scenes, and overall the storyline is amazing. I really enjoyed it, and I think you will too. As always, you can find the show on my webpage, www.ottgwpodcast.com. I'm also on Spotify Radio, Google Play Music, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Podbean, and more. If there's a platform you can't find me on, please email me at ottgwpodcast at gmail.com, and I'll do my best to make it happen. 
please leave me a review on whichever platform you listen to the show. It would be much appreciated. You can also find me on Instagram at OTTGW Podcast and on Facebook. Until the next episode, Avidasana.